0: This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare care providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Celiac disease, also known as gluten-sensitive enteropathy, is an immune reaction individuals get in response to eating gluten, a protein found in wheat, rye, and barley. The diagnosis is not particularly difficult to make, yet it's estimated that a significant number of patients with celiac disease are undiagnosed and have no idea they have the condition. Yet untreated celiac disease can cause a variety of rather serious complications. With us today to discuss celiac disease is Dr. Joseph Murray, a gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic and an expert in celiac disease. Welcome, Joe.
1: Thanks for having me, Daryl.
0: Well, I see only adults, and I've only seen celiac disease in adults, but uh, I understand it can occur in children. How does that how does usually present?
1: Celiac disease can present in many different ways. It can masquerade and w- with many different disguises. In children, you mentioned children, in children it can present with diarrhea, failure to gain weight, failure to thrive in the very young children. In adults, uh, classically, we think of celiac disease as a diarrheal disease, perhaps associated with weight loss, but that's now probably the minority of patients. Most patients are presenting with single symptoms like iron deficiency anemia is probably now the single most common, single presenting method for patients with celiac disease. But as I said, diarrhea, abdominal pain, bloating... Secondary lactose intolerance, where the damage to the lining of the intestine results in a loss of lactase and the ability to tolerate lactose, is another fairly common presentation. And those are GI presentations. And then there are all the non-GI presentations, things like osteoporosis that's accelerated or osteomalacia, perhaps, in young people. Presentation with skin diseases, an extremely itchy skin disease called dermatitis herpetiformis, is a classic manifestation. But the list goes on. Some someone has cataloged at least three hundred and sixty different ways that celiac disease can present.
0: Well, because the symptoms are so varied and sometimes somewhat vague, I imagine it can take a while before a a provider kind of thinks about the diagnosis Mm -hmm. of celiac
1: disease. Absolutely, and and there've been some. Studies have suggested that the delay from the onset of symptoms to diagnosis can be as long as 11 years. Now, of course, all that 11 years isn't necessarily spent on a medical odyssey by the patient. Much of it may be time spent suffering in silence, or perhaps even patients who think that having three or four or five bowel motions a day is normal. And five bowel motions a day is not normal, for example. But then something comes about or they visit with a physician who asks them about GI symptoms. And when they relate it, they say, well, I do have this. And they say, well, that's not normal. We should test you for or search for a cause. There isn't any cardinal symptom, though I think the most common reason that triggers testing is iron deficiency anemia.
0: What pathology is occurring in the small intestine of patients with celiac disease?
1: Well, Daryl, the cardinal change is villus atrophy, that the villi, which are those long finger-like projections that line this small intestine, become broader, flatter, and inflamed. And then the crypt, which is the basement level, becomes enlarged or thickened, and you get this crypt hyperplasia and villus atrophy. And then, allied with that, there is this infiltration of lymphocytes, which are the cells which primarily react to the presence of gluten in these patients. Now, that change occurs in the proximal small intestine, the duodenum primarily. It can have a variable degree of extent down the small intestine. Indeed, we've even coined the term ultra-short celiac disease that's limited just to the very proximal duodenum. Um, Now, why are these areas affected? That's where the Wheat gluten starts to be broken down into smaller components that the immune system can see and therefore react to. You don't tend to get the damage in the distal small intestine.
0: So this flattening of the villi would reduce the surface area of the small intestine. And is that why malabsorption problems, decreased nutrient absorption, mm-hmm. such as iron occurs?
1: Yes, I, th- I think you're spot on there. There's a loss of the surface or working area of the small intestine. And that working area allows for both digestion and then absorption. You also, with the deepening of the crypts, you've got more secretion going on. So in some patients, you get a lot of net secretion of liquid into the intestine leading to diarrhea. But because, I've, as i said, this tends to be a proximal small intestinal disease, the rest of the small intestine can reabsorb the water. So, uh, quite a few patients have no diarrhea at all. In fact, some patients seem to have constipation as their prominent symptom.
0: So, since it's a proximal small bowel disease, that would be why iron deficiency is common, but something like vitamin B12 deficiency, which is Is more likely to be absorbed distally, is not seen. It's less
1: common. The B12 deficiency is less common, but it does occur. And the mechanism is a reversible mechanism, which seems to relate to the the transfer factors that are involved in shuttling the B12 from the stomach through the small intestine. That, that shuttling may not work efficiently in some patients. We, we think as many as a quarter of patients with celiac disease are B12 deficient. But most of those patients you can treat, if they're not symptomatic of the B12, you can treat them with oral B12 and they can correct fine. And eventually when they heal their celiac disease, their absorption of B12 normalizes. But as you said, iron deficiency is is by far and away the most common deficiency. In fact, if a physician has a patient in their practice that they're having to give parenteral iron to, they should have made sure that they've tested that patient for celiac disease because that's an even stronger indicator of celiac disease if oral iron does not work.
0: Is this pathology of the villi and the inflammation reversible when patients are effectively treated?
1: Yes. And the vast majority of patients will heal their intestine. The general guide is that if patients are younger at diagnosis, like they're a child, they'll heal more quickly. Patients diagnosed as adults, however, don't heal so quickly. And the older the patient is at diagnosis, the less certain that healing occurs. So if somebody is, say, 60 years old at the time of diagnosis, as many as 30% of those patients will not heal their small intestine. They'll improve but they will not heal it.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Are there risk factors for getting celiac disease? Are some people more susceptible, more likely to present with celiac than others?
1: Yes. Uh, so being Caucasian is probably the most obvious risk factor. And that's a broad definition of Caucasian. That is Europeans, uh, people from North India, North Africa, across the Middle East are quite prone to celiac disease. Uh, People who originate from South America, many of those are European extraction, and they certainly can have a lot of celiac disease. On the other hand, African Americans, it's much less likely to be affected by celiac disease. And East Asians, that is Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, Malaysians, are much less likely to be affected by celiac disease. So Caucasian would be the first. The second is women are probably more commonly certainly symptomatic with celiac disease, but there may even be still an excess of females who get celiac disease. And then the other risk factor is genetic, and it relates to a HLA type or the tissue type. Almost everyone with celiac disease, no matter where they come from, carry a HLA type called DQ2 or a smaller proportion carry DQ8. And people who lack either of those or both of those HLA types essentially can't get celiac disease. And that can be useful if you're in a difficult circumstance trying to rule out the diagnosis in someone who has perhaps been gluten-free for many years. The absence of the HLA type can be very helpful.
0: How about pregnancy? Does celiac disease have an effect on pregnancy or vice versa? Does pregnancy have an effect on celiac
1: disease? Uh, Probably both. So patients with celiac disease have a tendency towards some level of infertility. And that's both male and female factor infertility. And both of course are reversible if the celiac disease is detected early enough while there still is reproductive potential. The second is there perhaps is a slight increase in spontaneous abortion in women with undetected celiac disease. It's probably not great, but it, but not a greatly increased risk, but it's certainly there. And then finally, there is the other way around that somebody with celiac disease, uh, who doesn't know it, but they get pregnant, they may often suppress their symptoms during pregnancy. And But after pregnancy is finished, when the immune system reconstitutes, suddenly they may develop symptoms after delivery. And of course, some of those symptoms may be nonspecific, like fatigue, which there may be the social reason of having a new baby, of course, as an explanation. But that's not a rare finding to, to see patients who date the onset of their symptoms to after the birth of a particular child.
0: All right. Well, let's talk about how we would establish a diagnosis of celiac disease. We've talked about how it might present. And I suspect most of the cases are diagnosed by primary healthcare providers. What Indeed. should we be doing to confirm a case of celiac
1: disease? So the, really, the, the first step, of course, is suspicion, that you suspect it in your patient. As I've already said, there are so many different ways it can present that that itself provides a major challenge. The the rule of thumb I say for who to test, is if they have a family history of celiac disease, if they have type one diabetes, or they have a family member with type one diabetes, those are people who are already at risk. The next are people with iron deficiency anemia, people with chronic diarrhea. Those also are people I think that should be tested. How about patients who continually complain of a variety of complaints, and they don't all fit together, body aches, joint pains, fatigue, bowel upset, those are patients also to consider testing because celiac disease could explain a lot of their symptoms. Now, once you think about it, then the the appropriate test is a serologic test and tissue transutaminase IgA is the best single test to do in a patient with celiac disease with one important caveat and that is The patient has to be on a gluten-containing diet, a normal gluten-containing diet at the time of testing. Many patients who already suspect it may have eliminated gluten from their diet, in which case the serologic test is going to be much less sensitive.
0: Do patients who have a positive serologic test need a small bowel biopsy? It's
1: an excellent question. By and large, for adults, the answer is yes. So if you have an adult who is a positive serologic test, they should undergo a biopsy. Now, why is that? I mean, the tests, when you look at the papers, they've got a specificity of 90%, 95%, which for most diagnostic tests is not bad. However, many patients have blood test results that are close to the threshold. They're just in the positive range. And their likelihood of celiac disease may be as low as 40%. So I suggest it's very important for someone who is seropositive to be promptly referred for biopsies to confirm the diagnosis. In children, there has been a somewhat of a shift in that if the blood test is extremely positive, and that's a really it's got to be more than 10 times the upper limit of normal, then the patient should be referred to a pediatric gastroenterologist who can then assess what the likelihood of the diagnosis is and determine if a biopsy can be avoided in that circumstance. But I I definitely do think that in most adults, a biopsy is necessary to confirm what is essentially a lifelong diagnosis. And the second part is if there remains uncertainty and the patient's already gone gluten-free, it can be very difficult to confirm the diagnosis.
0: And what about the patient who is supposedly is on a normal diet, not, not restricting gluten, and their tissue transglutaminase is negative, yet we still highly suspect it? Are uh, there mm. still reasons to do the biopsy in that case?
1: Yes. So if you have a patient who was, say, a family member of, of somebody with celiac disease, and they have symptoms that are suggestive, and their initial blood test is negative— I would subject that patient to an endoscopy. Uh, I think it's quite reasonable Mm -hmm. because there can be people who are seronegative. Mm -hmm. Now, when you get into the details of the serologic testing, there is an issue of IgA deficiency. About 4% of people with celiac disease have selective IgA deficiency, which means the standard TTG IgA is not effective. And the strategy that we have uh, evolved at the Mayo is to use a what's called a celiac cascade, which means we start with the lab, the lab starts with a total IgA level. And if that IgA level is normal, then the next test is a TTG IgA, and then depend on that result. If the IgA is absent or low, then it reflexes within the lab to include the IgG measures. We don't use the IgG-based tests as a primary test in someone whose total IgA is normal because you get a lot of false positives. And that's a real bugbear of that particular you know type of test.
0: All right, let's turn to uh, treatment. Um, there is no simple cure for this, but patients can be effectively managed. And I believe the management is a gluten-free diet. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Um, Exclusion of gluten. gluten Gluten-free diet just rolls right off the tongue. Of course, the implementation is a lot more tricky than that. And I found that patients who don't get to meet a experienced dietitian who is familiar with the disease and its treatment tend to be basically cast adrift and have to search their own information and not always with the best outcome. I mean, this is a lifelong diagnosis with a life affecting treatment. So they do really need that expert dietary intervention. Now, there have been a number of studies done on the burden of care or the burden of treatment and celiac disease burden of care is quite high, similar to that of chronic kidney disease and higher than many other common diseases. And that's because the burden is entirely on the patient or their family. And there has been, as so far, no medication that is suitable for treating celiac disease, though there are clinical trials underway trying to address some possibilities.
0: Now, I've been around long enough to remember, say 20, 25 years ago, when I made a diagnosis of celiac disease, the treatment was rather difficult. Food that was gluten-free was hard to find. Uh, These patients could not eat much in a restaurant. And I think now one of the most popular diets around is a gluten-free diet, whether it's really needed or not, but it is popular. I think that's really helped our celiac patients because now they can find more variety of food. Uh, There's restaurants that have a gluten-free section. So I think this has really benefited them.
1: But um, it it can be a tough diet to follow. It it certainly can. I think there is a difference between those who casually adopt a gluten-free diet Uh, because they want to try it out, and those who are essentially medically forced onto the diet. So psychologically, there's a different impact. Some have chosen to do it, and some are essentially forced into it because of their health problem. The the issue of restaurants I think is important to think about is that, yes, it makes it more mainstream. The problem is that sometimes those restaurant staff or restaurants themselves trivialize it, and the restaurants do not have to abide by the FDA regulations on what terms gluten-free. So there can be contamination that occurs in restaurants. So I still tell my patients with celiac disease that if they go to a restaurant, it's not enough for them to ask for a gluten-free items or gluten-free menu, but to let, them, let the, the wait staff know, I have to be on this diet because of a diagnosis of celiac disease. I'm not choosing to be on it for a lifestyle. So that's one issue, but certainly the uh, availability of gluten-free items in the grocery store is dramatically different from what it was you know, even 10 years or even five years ago. The, the costs are still high. Gluten-free items still often cost two or three times what the normal items cost.
0: There are a lot of patients that I have who are on a gluten-free diet, or at least they claim to be but don't have celiac disease, are they getting any benefit from this? Are there benefits to
1: gluten-free diets if you don't have celiac? This is a, daily, a question I face daily in my clinic of people who come who think they might have it. And, and, and I suppose, theoretically, there isn't much benefit that's derived from simply being gluten-free. And indeed, you may lose out on a lot of fiber and your antioxidants or what other beneficial things that are present in whole grain It's very hard to get those on a gluten-free diet. So that's one thing you miss out on. You miss out on fiber, which, of course, helps bowel regularity for many people. So those are things one misses out. You probably also change your microbiome. Now, we're not sure if that's good or bad, but you probably do change your microbiome by removing a major source of protein and calories from your diet. There are probably inadvertent good things. People who go gluten-free, it's harder to eat fast food are uh, junk food. So maybe that provides some unintentional benefits. There is a small, small group of patients who don't have celiac disease, but who truly have non-celiac gluten sensitivity. But that's a quite a small percentage and, and very much probably makes up a tiny group of those patients that you have that are trying out a gluten-free diet.
0: Well, let's conclude with talking about the complications of celiac disease if, it's, if it goes untreated.
1: So celiac disease you know, is a chronic inflammatory condition. There's substantial inflammation in the small intestine. and Anywhere you get substantial inflammation, you can get complications such as malignancy. So the two primary malignancies we worry about are lymphoma, a, T, a type of T-cell lymphoma of the intestine, or adenocarcinoma of the small intestine. Thankfully, both of them are extremely rare to begin with. And even though the relative risk of those cancers is much higher in patients with celiac disease, it's still quite low as an absolute risk. When does it happen? It happens to older patients who are diagnosed later in life, and it typically occurs within a couple of years of diagnosis. And what this, this is another reason why I am pretty hot on two things. One is Doing an endoscopy to confirm the diagnosis at the time that the blood tests are positive. And the second is to follow people up. So I rescope people a year or two years later to make sure that they've healed. And while this is not universal practice in adults, it is largely recommended for people diagnosed over the age of 40 that they should have follow up endoscopy to make sure they've healed. And if they don't heal, they are at greater risk of those malignancies. Now there are other non-malignant complications, things like uh, the osteoporosis that I mentioned earlier, but you can get stricturing or obstruction in the small intestine also is a potential complication. And then there are some disorders that follow with celiac disease, exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, microscopic colitis are some, and those are conditions that are more frequent in patients with celiac disease and can cause persistent or recurrent symptoms in a patient who is otherwise doing an excellent job on a gluten-free diet.
0: Okay. So Joe, if you had to summarize what we've discussed, maybe two or three key points, what would you tell our listeners is most important
1: about celiac disease? So it's common, meaning 1% of Caucasians. It's probably hiding in your practice somewhere. Think about testing patients who come back a second or third time complaining of nonspecific symptoms, and especially those who are in deficiency. Test people before they go gluten-free. And finally, refer patients who have a diagnosis on to get care with an expert dietitian to get them started on the right road.
0: All right. Well, we've been discussing celiac disease with Dr. Joseph Murray, a gastroenterologist from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Joe, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thank you for having me, Darrell. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.